Good All of you on the good earth. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 811 for the week of Monday, October 24th, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Back from my encounter with the Virginia Air Force, but we're back at home base in New Jersey and ready to talk some space. How are you doing, Sawyer? I'm doing very well, thank you. Welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, aka Craftlass. Thank you very much, Sawyer, and I hope everybody's been having a great week. Oh, yes, it's been a great space week for the most part. And welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Very happy to be back, fresh off of several weeks of travel. So excited to share this next episode with you. Oh, yes. Now, we've got a lot to cover in this episode. So let's start things off with a quick recap of some of the biggest space news in the last few weeks. Although it's mainly been the last week. First, on Sunday, October 16th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time or 23.30 GMT, a Long March 2F rocket lifted off carrying two Taikonauts, or Chinese astronauts. Jing Haipeng and Chen Dong then docked a few days later with the Tiangong-2 Space Laboratory. This is China's second space station, launched on September 15th of this year. This mission, called Shenzhou-11, is China's sixth ever manned mission and the first to the new orbiting laboratory. On to the more famous orbiting lab, the International Space Station. After some delays on Monday, October 17th at 7.45 p.m. Eastern, 23.45 GMT, Cygnus flew again. Orbital ATK's resupply vehicle to the ISS launched aboard an Antares rocket from Wallops Island, Virginia. This was the first Antares launch since the October 2014 failure in which the payload and vehicle were both lost in a fireball a few seconds after liftoff. The spacecraft, named the SS Allen Poindexter after the late astronaut, was captured by the station's robotic arm on Sunday, October 23rd at 7.28 a.m. Eastern, 11.28 GMT. Our very own Gene McCulka was at the launch and will have thoughts along with some amazing interviews later in November. You are not going to want to miss those. Now, the reason for such a long time between the launch and the docking, almost a week, was because of another launch. The Soyuz MS-02, the second of the newly upgraded and digital Soyuz craft, lifted off from the Baikonur Cosmodrome on Wednesday, October 19th at 4.05 a.m. Eastern Time, 8.05 GMT. Aboard were the three-member crew to the International Space Station, including NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough and cosmonauts Sergei Rizikov and Andrei Borisenko. They will join the Expedition 49 mission already in progress, which includes NASA astronaut Kate Rubens, cosmonaut Anatoly Ivanishin, and Japanese astronaut Takuya Onishi. That crew will only be six for a few more days, as those last three are set to return home on October 29th. Don't worry, another crew of three is set to launch in November, but we'll cover that as it happens. And the European Space Agency successfully put a new spacecraft in orbit around Mars. The Trace Gas Orbiter entered Mars orbit on October 19th as well. Its companion, the Scaparelli Lander, didn't fare as well. 
The small lander crashed into the surface at over 300 kilometers per hour, Issa said. Data showed that everything was normal until the parachute cut away slightly early and the landing thrusters didn't fire long enough. Both of these were part of the ExoMars mission, a joint Roscosmos and ESA program. This is all ahead of a scheduled 2020 rover mission of the same name. And there is just a quick look at some of the many stories that happened this week. Whew. Many of those stories we will do our best to cover in depth a little bit more in our next news episode coming up. But one thing that we really wanted to get in is we wanted to address a listener question that we received. That question came from Kevin Straitmatter, who asked us, quote, With this being an election year, is there a website or something I can look at to easily determine candidates' stances on space? I'd like to educate myself more on the candidates to make a more informed decision. This, of course, referring to the U.S. presidential election, which is happening a little more than two weeks from the day that we record this. Kat, I know you've been looking into this for us, so if you could help us figure out what all these candidates' stances are on space and hopefully inform all of our listeners and Kevin as well, which, Kevin, thank you for the email, by the way. Yes, thank you so much, Kevin. I'm really happy to share this information with you. Uh, so what I've done is I've put together a document, sort of a, a bit of a voter guide, something that we're going to share with our listeners uh, that includes the sources where I got all of these. Unfortunately, there's no one website where you can go to to get easy answers for all the positions, but hopefully this will give you a better guide for when you're making decisions if you want to make your decisions based on candidate position space. So what I've done is I have six sort of big fields that I was able to get uh, the majority of candidate positions on. They include NASA, so uh, what the candidate position is on funding for NASA or NASA's direction, budget, and this is more in reference to NASA's budget, not overall budget as a whole for space activities, because as I'm sure our listeners are aware in the U.S. government, it's space program. The NASA space program is not the entirety of the U.S. expenditures on space. Climate change, because of the uh, large deal of Earth observation satellites and things that go into the research on climate change. The direction of the space program, as we are all aware and we've discussed here on the show several times and, and over the years, is administrations can change the direction of the space program. We saw that with the cancellation of Constellation. And we want you to know what the candidates have said, if they've said anything about the direction, the private and public and commercial partnerships, and finally, just military. So military space spending and, and what their objectives are here. So for this, I've included the major party candidates, Hillary Clinton for the Democrats and Donald Trump for the Republicans, as well as the Libertarian candidate, Gary Johnson, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, and also Evan McMullen. He is running as an independent, but he is formerly a Republican. I include him because he has a very high chance right now of actually winning Utah, which is something that hasn't happened in a very long time. And so for those of you who may be listening from Utah, we want you to be well informed about a candidate who has lead polls in your state. So to begin with, on NASA, I'm going to go th through these by category. So Hillary Clinton has said that if she's elected, she's going to support NASA's efforts to drive innovation and wants to continue to see NASA be a global leader. And she says that she's very firmly behind human exploration of space. Donald Trump has said that our civilian space program should reflect scientific priorities and aspirations of our society and says that Congress will be a full partner in shaping those priorities. However, elsewhere he's also said that he doesn't think the government should fund space travel. Um, unfortunately, there are a few spots that you will find out where Trump has said one thing and perhaps his surrogates have said, it, have 
said another. We have some links so you can see those different positions. Gary Johnson says that he's generally supportive of the space program, but however, he supports funding cuts across the government, which would include a 43% cut to NASA. And both Jill Stein and Evan McMullen have both said that they support government funding for space, but no further details. When it comes to the budget, Clinton has said that an investment in NASA is an investment in our future. So she has said that she will fully support a NASA budget that invests in innovative, meaningful programs that are managed wisely and efficiently. Donald Trump has said that his administration will examine spending priorities and make adjustments as necessary, though he does say that as a business person, he is mindful of the many benefits, inventions, and scientific breakthroughs that would not have come without the space program. Again, to reiterate, Gary Johnson has said that he supports government funding for space, but because of budgetary constraints, thinks that it should be cut by 43%. Again, this is where he says all government spending should be cut by 43%, so he's not necessarily singling out NASA for that. Jill Stein has said that we should increase NASA's funding, but has given no specific number. And unfortunately, I have no data for those of you in Utah or in other places in the U.S. thinking about Evan McMullen. On climate change, Hillary Clinton has said that she believes climate change is one of the most serious challenges we face, and she's committing to make sure that America leads the global effort to combat climate change and to deepen scientific understanding of the same. Donald Trump has not affirmed a belief in human-caused climate change and has not committed to giving any government money for research on climate change, saying that he believes it could perhaps be used in other areas. Gary Johnson says that he accepts climate change is occurring and that human activity is contributing to it. Jill Stein, again, uh, echoing uh, some previous stances you have heard, says that climate change is the greatest existential threat that humanity has ever faced. And Evan McMullen has said that uh, no government money should be used to combat climate change. And similar to Donald Trump, has not found that human climate change is necessarily the result of human-caused action. So moving on to the direction, so what happened? Are we going to face another constellation <laughs> crisis? Hillary Clinton has said that Many of the technologies we need to send astronauts to an asteroid can also serve as foundational technologies that will be necessary to make human exploration of Mars possible. So she has committed to continuing in the steps of the Obama administration, believing that we need to reach these human exploration goals, so the asteroid mission as well as to Mars. Donald Trump has said that after taking office, he will have a comprehensive review of our plans for space and will work with Congress to set both priorities and missions. So. No commitment either way there, saying simply that he will review them with Congress. And we have no data for any of the other candidates. As for a private, uh, the space of private space and new space and commercial space within our space program, Hillary Clinton has said that it is in NASA's interest to work with public and private cooperations and to do so in order to give taxpayers the best return on investment and to provide services to projects such as the International Space Station. Donald Trump has said that he thinks there is going to be ample opportunity for public-private partnerships in the space program, and he thinks that it is something he would again review with Congress. He has also said in previous places that he thinks that private companies should be leading the way in space exploration. Gary Johnson has said that private corporations are increasingly interested in space travel, and the private sector has access to far more resources than the public, so he welcomes private participation and even dominance in space exploration. We have no data for Jill Stein on this question, and for Evan McMullen, he has said that he supports private companies in space. 
And finally, since our military in the U.S. is a large contributor to space activities, and though we do not know because many of these activities are classified, the exact amount of the budget, we do want to let you know where the candidates stand. And Hillary Clinton has said that she believes that we must advance our technological capabilities and ensure the operational readiness of our military space efforts while keeping costs down. And Donald Trump has said we should concentrate on making sure that we enhance combat lethality and increase situational awareness and expand our intelligence capabilities. And for Johnson, Stein, and McMullen, I have no information or data. So lots for you to take in there. That's just the, the six places where we see um, some interest for voters. And again, this is all we've put together in sort of a voter guide spreadsheet with all of my sources that we are going to share with you in the show notes that you can go in and see the information that I have. And if I get any of this update, I did reach out to a few campaigns. So if I get any updated information, I will definitely add it in. So there you go. Our Talking Space 2016 Voting Guide. Wow. That is a lot of information. Holy smokes, you've done your research on this. <laughs> well, you know, at, here at Talking Space, we want you to make whatever, uh, whatever decision is right for you with the best information available. I know we try and keep our political views quiet on this, and I'm going to attempt to do the same. Any thoughts on what you've just heard? Just one that I was thinking of, and I'm recalling something that I remember writing a, a while back ago. We were discussing, I guess, the SLS and what may happen to it in the cusp of all this. The interesting thing about that is SLS is not really a... It's not a PowerPoint rocket anymore. It's actually physical. The core stage is being built. The boosters are being tested and so on. So it's going to be kind of difficult to have SLS go the way of Constellation. But the other interesting point on that is I thought Bill Gerstenmeier was an absolute genius because he went ahead and engineered SLS in such a flexible manner. Like for instance, if the picture decided to change and the next president decided, hey, let's do a lunar shot first and then go off to Mars. SLS stands ready to do that. So it's, I kind of think we're in a position now, we're not exactly bulletproof, but we're halfway there. So if the next president decides, hey, we're going to do a moonshot first, then shoot from Mars, we can do that too. If anybody else is also interested, there's a couple of op-eds that both former Congressman Robert Walker and another gentleman, Pino Navarro, wrote in favor of Mr. Trump. They're w worth exploring if you want to get a, a little bit of an understanding, too, of what Trump's talking about. I know that uh, there was some discussion out there on Twitter about why all of a sudden two Trump op-eds show up on Space News, but uh, I have a feeling, too, it was just uh, Robert Walker writing. I mean, Walker is no stranger to spaceflight. He was as a, as a congressperson. And they are also serving as advisors to the Trump campaign. Right, exactly. So that, that's something that I think that, that is salient to our readers that they should be aware of. And from nonpartisan here, because, again, for us on Talking Space, we want you to make your decision with the best possible news available. Um, Donald Trump is the only candidate here that I found conflicting statements because he often says one thing and his advisors or surrogates say another. He said when asked by Space News, in fact, we should 
probably just point out Space News did a really great candidate questionnaire, which compares Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's position. So definitely something I suggest you look when you're looking specifically for their positions. And he reiterated throughout that questionnaire that he answered that he intends on reviewing NASA's goals and priorities with, with Congress. There was another gentleman that asked, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find the gentleman's name here on Twitter, that did ask the Clinton campaign if they were going to go ahead and write anything up or any kind of editorial or anything like that. And he was frequently pointed to that uh, Space News article or that's in Space News magazine. That was a point-counterpoint between the two major candidates. There are some stark differences, but in 2020 hindsight, I think what happens on paper in a campaign and what happens when a candidate actually gets in are two different things. And we've seen about faces on the turn of a dime in, in some of these space policies. That's one of the things that's really funny, like watching the Trump campaign, because I'm looking right now at Planetary Society's voter guide and I'm looking at the Donald Trump page and they literally have on August 3rd at a rally in Daytona, he said, look at your space program. Look at what's going on there. Somebody just asked me backstage, Mr. Trump, will you get involved in the space program? Look what's happened with your employment. Look what's happened with our whole history of space and leadership. Look what's going on, folks. We're like a third world nation. Meanwhile, a week earlier, less than a week earlier, July 28th on Reddit, he was asked, what role should NASA play in helping to make America great again? And he said, Honestly, I think NASA is wonderful. America has always led the world in space exploration. So Kat was talking about there's differences between what he and his surrogates say, but there's even differences from one event to practically the next in what he says about it, depending on the audience and the moodies in that day or whatever it is. So it is interesting that when you have somebody who doesn't seem to have a real clear vision, even in the campaign, it's even harder to have any idea. But on the other hand, you can't trust what people say in campaigns. And you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, we've had about faces before. <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, even overnight about faces that happened in uh, 2008 with the Obama campaign, where then Senator Obama had, a, had an interesting uh, educational platform that he wanted to go ahead and, and fund. And it was going to cost about $7 billion. And the way he was going to do it, he was essentially going to cut the NASA budget in half. And then he gets to Florida. Bill Nelson gets his ear. And all of a sudden, <laughs> that educational program just vanishes off the site. And we have a brand new space policy. So I guess uh, Senator Nelson got into Mr. Obama and basically said, you know, okay, you want to win Florida? Here's what you need to do. And all of a sudden now he was for quickly closing the gap and all this. So Yeah, so I think not to get too much into the weeds because we are looking at, it is important to know that I think that we're all aware that candidates will make promises that they do not keep or make policies that they're unable to pursue. But for this election, we do have a great guide for you that shows candidate positions as they have articulated along with links to where they articulated them at. Yeah, and I would definitely take a look at the Space News Magazine article that uh, everybody seems to be citing on this one. I, I will say bluntly, I don't have a horse in this race. I'm still kind of on the undecided side on all of this, just for the record. But I will say that 
the more thoughtful presentation in that was on the Democratic campaign side. But you could still say a lot of elegant things and still say nothing at the same time. It's up to you folks if you're looking for a, a good guide. I think we've provided at least some groundwork for you. Hopefully it'll be some use if spaceflight is important to you to make that extraordinarily important decision that uh, all of us Americans are going to be making in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. And of course, we all know that you can't make this decision just based on spaceflight. We all have multiple issues that we care about. But I would like to advise people to take a look at all of the positions of a candidate and think about how it relates to space, because you might get a little bit more honest of a picture of what they might do with NASA when you look at how they feel about funding government agencies in general, um, how they feel about things like climate change. You should look that up for yourself and think about how that affects the space budget for the future. Very well said. And if you do want to check out at least the space policies that we mentioned, we will have a link to that chart on our website at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. So definitely go ahead and read through all that. And you can see all the original sources where we got many of the information from, too. Yeah, I'd like to thank Kat very much for putting that together because I hope you guys find that to be a great resource. I know I already have. And again, I've just, I think I found that gentleman uh, that had asked that question, quote, I've asked the Clinton campaign for a statement on, on policy. They redirected me to the Space News magazine piece. Which I will say is a very elegant iteration of policies. I mean, both candidates gave comprehensive answers to the questions for the most part. And... Also, the Planetary Society Voter Guide is really great because it has pretty much statements on space going back years, so even statements that Clinton has made uh, in other facets of her public life. And also remember that, at least in the case of Hillary Clinton, there is, um, you can check out her voting history, how she voted in, on the past on things like NASA's budget. So she has been in public office before, so she is on the record for some of these issues that may be important to our our readers. Also, just one final observation on the uh, the Space News Magazine piece. Again, there were nine questions given. Uh, the last two, I think, were kind of telling. One was number eight. Do you have any memory of, memory of the Apollo moon landing that you'd want to share? And Trump basically gave this one one paragraph. Hillary Clinton gave a two paragraph answer. And quite frankly, hers was a little bit more there was a little bit more of a human side to it. The last one was, quote, any other comments would you like to make? And this was sort of an opportunity for both candidates to make some sort of summation to you know, anything that they had said in the previous eight questions. And Hillary Clinton gave a rather thoughtful summation of the whole thing. And Trump basically just said no, which I thought was rather amusing. Funny you should point that out. I actually sent a picture of that to Cassie and say, look at this. However, I think it's very important that you know everyone makes their own decision, whatever decision is best for them. As some of our listeners may know, I also teach undergraduates and I'm teaching intro to American politics. So you can imagine they're all very interested in the election. I always walk in and I tell them, my goal is not to change your vote. I only care that you make informed decisions. And that is my goal with putting together this voter guide for you here. 
Also want to point out that sciencedebate.org did a really great thing called 20 questions and they asked 20 science questions to Clinton, Trump, Stein, and Johnson and they all have given answers on other science questions. So if you're not just a space enthusiast but you're a science enthusiast in general, there is a place you can get more information about the science positions of the candidates and some of them might be surprising to you. So I really suggest, you know, the link is on our guide on candidate positions and you can check that out. And again, our goal here at Talking Space is not to persuade you to vote for any candidate, but just hoping that you make your vote. If space is an important issue to you, that you make it with all the information available. Exactly. And Kat, again, thank you for doing a lot of the research on getting that chart together that's on the site. And My pleasure. Thank for everybody who's out there who is eligible to vote and able to vote, please go out and vote. We really don't care who you go out and vote for as long as you make an informed decision and you go out there and exercise your right to vote. And I'm sure everybody in the world who are not United States listeners will agree. You've got the right to vote. Go ahead and do it. All right, so now we're going to switch gears and we are going to continue our coverage of IAC. If you missed part one, make sure you listen to last episode, which was episode 810, in which we go into Elon Musk's Mars talk and a whole bunch of other great topics. But... There was so much that we had to put it all into two episodes because we couldn't fit it all into one. So there's so much to go on here. And I think the biggest thing is the I, that it's international. Because everyone thinks of NASA. They think of ESA. They think of JAXA. But there's so many other space agencies and so many other countries that are now trying to get into the game. Can you talk about some of the other countries that were getting involved? Yeah, so we were had this great opportunity to sit down and, and do an interview with the Swedish Space Corporation uh, while we were at IAC. And so we'd like to kind of start the kickoff talking about sort of the international aspect of the International Astronautical Congress with this interview. Yeah, as Kat said, we were really lucky because one of the first people we met in the whole week was actually from Swedish Space Corporation. And the theme of the entire IAC was making space accessible and affordable to all countries. Now, the Swedish Space Corporation is Sweden's national space corporation, as they'll explain in the interview what that means. But <laughs> what's great is we don't when you think of space, you don't think Sweden and they've actually been around since the 1960s. They have been a player in the space game. And I wasn't aware of that. They're celebrating their 50 years as well. Yes. As many, many agencies and entities surrounding space are coming up on 50-year celebrations in previous years and the years to come. So yeah, we were just really grateful that we got to sit down with Stefan Gardefjord, the CEO, and Guillermo Basque, the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing, right in the middle of the conference for this interview. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank, thank you, for, thank you. Thank you for having us. I'd like to ask you a little bit if you could tell us a bit about SSC. It's probably not a, a space agency that our listeners are familiar with. Well, I can start with that. Uh, first of all, uh, we're not an agency. We're a, a commercial company. So there are shares, mm -hmm. but the shares are owned by the Swedish government. <laughs> it's a pretty different thing if you come from the U.S., but it's a pretty normal thing in, in, in Europe. So we've been around for 50 years. Our first sounding rocket was launched in 1966. Our so this company was actually years. inaugurated in 72, but it all started in the 60s mm -hmm. when Europe wanted to get access to space, while the U.S. and the Russians were already racing for space, but maybe for more... Uh, defense-like purposes, and this was all for European peaceful purposes. 
and uh, Sweden uh, is actually uh, it's not very well populated, but it's a large country in, in European terms, and a huge part of that country is actually controlled by SSE uh, as a launch service provider. So, because uh, now I always get these numbers right. <laughs> uh, one percent of the, <laughs> of the landmass of Sweden is actually the S-Range uh, Space Center. So it was an ideal place to launch sounding rockets back in, in those days. And it has ever since developed to become the most versatile, one of the most versatile space centers in the world, doing both uh, launching activities and sounding rockets and high altitude balloons, but also uh, a lot of uh, satellite communication activities uh, going on from, from up there. So the S-Range is a really interesting part of, a part of the SSC. Will you talk a little bit more about how often you're launching there, the different types of launches? Yeah, okay. So um, over time, we've done about you know, more than 500 launches of sounding rockets and more than 500 uh, launches, if I may call it that, of uh, high-altitude balloons. In the old days, the, um, the sounding rockets were small and the balloons were small, and, and the launch frequency was pretty high. Over time, the rockets and balloons have become larger and larger, larger and larger, and, and, the, and the, uh, the frequency a little bit less, but that's because of the, you know, the magnitude of, of the missions and such. Uh, and that's how it all started, and that's how we have developed. Uh, now our, our dream and vision for the future is actually to extend that capability of launching actually satellites into orbit. Today we do scientific experiments, typically in the microgravity field or other scientific areas. But the versatile aspect of what we're doing is, is, is really important. There are very few places where you have this enormous amount of uh, inhabited landmass, but you still have an airport, you have infrastructure, you have uh, in, you know, habitable climate and, and, and all those sort of things. So you can actually work out of there uh, decently all, all year round. But then in the 70s, when the payload started to be satellites as opposed to, to uh, experiments uh, being, and, and the satellites being launched into orbit, uh, we actually started developing also uh, ground station activities for communication, both commanding the satellites and also then to, to downlinking the data. So that's what it's all about, but we have some grand visions to, to develop that also uh, for the future. Okay, so I understand that you are you have a global network already in place for <laughs> yeah. support for uh, small satellites, and yeah, that's yeah. an area that you're both yeah. interested in and developing more into. Yeah. So obviously, like most established players and actors in this industry, it's very much of an institutional agency heritage for us as well. Uh, but we have gradually uh, developed our business to become a more and more uh, active in what's called the commercial news space mm -hmm. of this world. And obviously there's a, new, uh, a lot of new technologies being brought into play here, for example, the constellations, small satellites, and, and I mean, we have a heritage of building satellites. We've mm -hmm. built and launched seven satellites of our own. Today, that's not really the core of our business, but we have activities in, in, in that field which plays very well into the uh, commercial news space, like propulsion systems, uh, as an example. But on the services side, because we have uh, taken a deliberate decision to focus on business on advanced space services. Mm -hmm. So science services, you know, the launching of the balloons and the rockets to do scientific research, the satellite management services, which you are referring to with the ground station network, but also engineering services, which is a wonderful activity. We have a couple of hundred really, really superb space engineers working all throughout Europe primarily. Uh, on the on, you know on the big renowned uh, missions that everybody uh, is, is monitoring in the, in the space industry, but the uh, ground station network which we we started to build with Estrus as a base, uh, you know some 
25, 30 years ago, has now evolved into a global network covering both the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere and the equatorial hemisphere as well, or latitude as well, for various uh, satellite orbits. And, and that is very, you know, very well established. You know, we're having contact with satellites you know, as we speak, every day, every hour, every minute. But there, we need to upgrade that functionality, and that's what we have been focusing on, because now the new the satellite constellations have different requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what we have been focusing on over the last couple of years, and we have now launched the new service we call the Infinity, the SSE Infinity service. That's a wonderful service and a wonderful opportunity for the future. And I understand that you're, you're focusing on making these services affordable and sort of a, a different type of service that, yeah. that your customers may not be looking for getting the, the transmission right on the first time, yeah. but rather being able to get multiple contacts with their, their satellites. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, just like the IT industry where I originally come from, <laughs> but, you know, about uh, uh, you know, moving uh, the cost structure, you know, one decimal point to the left, you know, every every number of years, so it's an order of magnitude there that, that we need to address. Uh, and it's very much addressed through the volumes, the economy of scale comes in here a lot. But also the, the technology and the standardization and the industrialization of, of technologies being deployed. And this is what we've seen in other industries. So looking at it at first, uh, and the challenges that this industry has seen as far as you know, meeting the price points that customers are prepared or even able to pay, it seems like an incredible challenge, but these things can actually be achieved if you take a serious approach to it and, and, and look at all these different aspects of how you can drive out cost. And again, the, the volume is one thing. Uh, the automation is a very, very big driver of reducing cost. And the deployment of standardized technology. You know, in the old legacy space industry, everything was bespoke for a mission. Mm -hmm. So everything was tailor-made from the beginning to fit that mission. I, you know, you can take the, the European uh, Rosetta mission as an example, mm -hmm. which was achieved uh, uh, recently. And, and uh, I mean, when that decision was made, I think it was 1994, and it was launched in 2004, and mm -hmm. it arrived there in 2014. Now, the spacecraft that arrived there was designed back in the mid-90s. So you can, you, know, you can imagine what kind of technology was, was used then. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you don't want things to screw up in, in, you know, 20 years later when it's actually <laughs> trying to do its mission. So it's all built around uh, you know, predictability and, and being proven technologies, which is quite understandable, and especially in human spaceflight, of course. But now when we apply space technologies to new applications, which are more commercially oriented, I think the aspects of, of uh, redundancy and, and uh, all the you know, safety and security and all those sort of things is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. And it also goes within you know, the fact that we're now using constellations and, and, and standardized technology. So there's a, a lot of what we tried to achieve previously when there was one spacecraft going into space in 20 years or going into space in 10 years to do its mission in 20 years. That's all built into the constellation concept anyway, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the price points have come down so severely. So it's a different uh, concept. Uh, it's quite intriguing and quite inspiring, I think, to actually sort of merge the information technology development, uh, if you call it that, with the space technology. And out of that comes something that's really inspiring for the future for new applications.
speaking of the future, and we won't take up too much more of your time, gentlemen. We know you're quite busy. There's lots of people to see here. Um, but where would you hope to see your company, uh, your corporation, in five years, ten years? And Guillermo, happy to hear from you as well. I mean, uh, we, SSE today, is, uh, has been working a lot with institutions. Mm -hmm. So our main customer base is based on institutional uh, business. Uh, we are looking forward to cooperating with commercial companies on a much more extended basis from here moving forward in order to triplicate or even to, to, to do business tenfold the, the, the kind of business we're doing today. So this is our goal, to increase our customer base as much as possible, always with institutional assignment that we have today from S-Trains mainly, mm -hmm. but also leveraging the network that we are setting up today, as uh, Stefan said, our Infinity Network, in order to be able to capture uh, an increasing interest from the marketplace for commercial uh, services. You know, typically our customers are as knowledgeable or even more knowledgeable than us in the, in the space domain. I mean, if you do business with NASA or ESA or DLR or NASA, <laughs> these guys, you know, they know their trade and, and, and so do we. Uh, I think a lot of the change going forward is that the, the future customers don't care so much about space. They're not space companies. Uh, they are just using space-based applications and technology to bring a new service or a new product to market. Now, in the sort of early phases here, a lot of, of those startup companies or new entrants find space so very intriguing and they get a little bit lost in what is their role in the value chain. Uh, eventually, I think uh, many of those companies will just want to turn to somebody who can provide the data, which is most frequently what you need. And maybe you can combine different data sources. Uh, and in, in order to do that, uh, and that's really what our aim is, you know, to be, become, I shouldn't say one-stop shop because it sounds a little bit uh, basic, but somebody who can actually ensure that everything from the design of the spacecraft itself to the procurement, to the design of the operational concept, to the launch and early orbit phase support, to the on continuous operations, that, that just clicks, clicks, clicks. Uh, and that's what most people today in the IT industry just mm -hmm. expects. It just works. If it doesn't work, it's a disaster. Yeah, you're looking for, to mm -hmm. provide comprehensive services. services. And, and that's, that's really the thing. And I think more and more of our customers who are not space companies but heavily dependent on space-based applications, they will rely upon somebody who can provide that whole end-to-end -end service. Mm -hmm. And that's really the position we have taken. And in the space industry, only five years ago, Predominantly, everybody was just concerned about the hardware part of things. You know, the technology that you can touch, uh, and it's quite exciting and thrilling. And we chose to take uh, a space into the, in the services arena, and we now see that, you know, a lot of companies are moving in that direction as well because it's so obvious. It's the use and the deployment and the value that you create from space-based technology that really matters, and not the technology itself. Again, talking about the commercial sector. The institutional sector is going to be vitally important because they will go to new frontiers and into deep space and to, you know, to Mars. Into Mars, we heard Elon Musk. You know, you know, nice visions for the future, mm -hmm. and that will drive technology and innovation even further. That will eventually then be repackaged and deployed into commercial applications. And that's, uh, you know, that's the way things work. Uh, so it's an exciting future, I think, ahead of us. I thought that was a really interesting interview for this particular IAC because not only are they a country that has a space corporation that doesn't get a lot of attention, but they're trying to help other countries 
get into this and other companies and smaller players and make this something that you can do even if you don't have the budget that a lot of the companies currently playing in space have. Yeah, they really are, are interested in making space accessible. What struck me really was the enthusiasm of these guys. I mean, one gentleman was saying, yeah, you know, on to Mars, let's go. And, and that just seemed to be the, these folks really, really want to go ahead and, and get in there and make a difference. So both Kat and Cassie, thank you for grabbing these two folks. And I'm wishing them well. The Endeavor sounds like it's definitely going to be something worthwhile and something to keep an eye on. I'm hoping Kat, Cassie, you guys have exchanged business cards and all that, so then maybe in like a few months from now, we can maybe have those, these folks on and, and find out uh, where they are at currently. Yeah, I definitely want to keep tabs on what they're doing because a lot of it's very interesting. And not only are they enabling, I mentioned other nations and companies, but that kind of launch services can create all kinds of opportunities for universities, maybe ones that don't currently get to do things like that because they need somebody that's a more comprehensive provider. They don't have the existing relationships with the bigger companies. It's It just creates so much opportunity. And they have everything. I mean, it wasn't, Guillermo was trying not to be I think flipping about it, but you know, they not only have launch services, especially for uh, small sets and, and looking at that, they also have some propulsion services. So some spacecraft propulsion, uh, looking at small sat propulsion and small spacecraft propulsion. And then they have a huge global network of ground tracking. So, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating and just something that's not on the radar for the average person who listens to our podcast probably isn't very aware of what they're doing. And it's really fantastic to, that we get to highlight that on, on the show. I really love the way that they talked about cost cutting because they talked to, we talk a lot about cost cutting on the show. They talk, the way that they approached cost cutting is exactly the way that you need to do it. Looking into more standardization, more ways to be able to take a factory sort of approach without it costing the client anything in quality. And that's that's wonderful to hear somebody talking like that about bringing really these costs is. down, really I thought. Quite refreshing. It's not about revolutionizing the entire industry. It's about building upon what's already there. I mean, it's amazing to hear about some of these other international partners getting in on this. Like, you know, who would have thought Swedish Space Corporation would be you know, getting into the game like this, let alone for being in the game for 50 years. And I mean, I'm sure they're not the only ones who are looking for international cooperation. And there are plenty of other partners I'm sure many of us have never heard of that really want to get into this game. And I know international cooperation was a big topic this time, right, Kat? Yeah, so this is actually the, the topic of the paper that I presented at IAC. One of the two things that I presented, the paper that I presented during the technical sessions of the main Congress was on the United States policy considerations on international cooperation beyond 2024. And for this paper, I was really looking at two research questions. The first was, in what ways is the national space policy of the U.S frame international cooperation as a part of its overall human exploration policy? And secondly, how do the heads of agencies describe the role of international cooperation in future human explorations when they spoke publicly? So I used U.S. policy documents as well as last year's at IAC 2015 in Israel's Heads of Agencies Plenary. And 
So I was able to look at both of these and perform a qualitative analysis to look at the results of how the U.S. is looking and framing international cooperation in terms of human space exploration. And so for the uh, U.S. policy side, uh, they frame we basically frame our national space policy in terms of international law, international partnerships, and international cooperation. Uh, when it comes to how the heads of agencies talk about cooperation, one big thing that they talk about is cooperation has to benefit Earth. So when we're working together, we're looking to work together to benefit all citizens and everyone living on the planet. They also talk about, you know, what's next? Is it the moon next? And possibly maybe Mars? There's a huge component of international cooperation going on with China. China is sort of like looming large over international cooperation. They did last year at IAC, and they certainly uh, was a big question this year as well. And all of these kind of lend into this question of what's going to happen after the International Space Station. Right now we have commitments into the 2020s, but something has to come next, and most spacefaring nations with national space agencies are looking toward moving beyond low Earth orbit. And finally, as we'll also discuss a little bit later, there's a lot of discussion about what is the role of increasing or how can space agencies and heads of agencies play a role in increasing access and involvement by women and minorities in the space sciences and the space industry. So for the national space policy, it's really clear that international cooperation is both a vital part of space use and exploration, and also a vehicle to facilitate that cooperation. Space policy is constrained by international law and trade agreements, and it also takes pains to be aware of that, but to frame it in the context of U.S. policy needs. There's also this really interesting part where space policy can be seen as sort of like a soft foreign policy, and um, when I talk about my other paper that I did, I'll, I'll talk about that a bit. But also, there is an agreement between the heads of agencies that international cooperation is a vital part of the future of both human spaceflight and human exploration beyond low Earth orbit. But, as we alluded to last week uh, when we talked about IAC, there's not always agreement on, on what's next. Most other nations want to go to the moon, whereas the U.S. in particular is focused on this journey to Mars. So one thing that, that always whenever I, I do any sort of research, at least for me because I am a doctoral student and I have to think about what's coming next or, or how does this fit into my larger research. So one thing that I, I did through the study and, and through my work found is that there is a disconnect between what the heads of agencies are saying and the policies of their nation or member states. So it would be uh, really interesting to do some quantitative work, so some work where we can actually look at policy statements versus policy outcomes and that would be an interesting project and perhaps maybe a project for next IAC or it might be a project that makes its way into my dissertation. So that's what I presented on talking about international cooperation. Hey Kat, just a quick question for you. Did you take a look at the International Space Station a little bit and see how that worked in by way of uh, cooperation and maybe some other and sort of juxtapose perhaps another program that did uh, require international cooperation and unfortunately may not have had the best of outcomes as, you know, let's say the, uh, the ISS has, has had and enjoyed. Uh, it's definitely an interesting question, Jane, but it was outside of the purview of the research I was doing because I was really focusing on this, what do we do after 2024 and what does the policy of the U.S. say that our goals are? 
and then how do we talk about those goals. But it would be really interesting to look at cooperation on the ISS, maybe looking at some of the Mars projects, you know, the ones that there has been international cooperation and even the ones uh, through which the U.S. has pulled out of, ExoMars is one that comes to mind. Um, so definitely an interesting question, but outside of what I did research for. I still kind of look at the, the way the ISS uh, has gone as sort of a, a template, if you will, for future international cooperation. And can that template move forward into, say, what you're, you're sort of advocating, to the, into the lunar village kind of thing or, or to something like that? And I would say there would be some, some lessons learned because although there is a lot of international cooperation on the ISS, a lot of the day-to-day, -day, you know, sort of like scientific experiments and things like that are, are done independently. Uh, different nations, you know, Russians work in their lab, the Americans work in theirs, and um, the astronauts from other nations will disperse between the two depending. So there are some ways in which the cooperation on the ISS has been ideal, but also, you know, we certainly don't want to rush the moon for us all to have our own little thing on the moon. At least personally, I think it would be better if we're working collaboratively in labs instead of having, here's the Chinese lab, here's the American lab, here's the ESA lab, here's the CSA lab. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question to what works at ISS that we should take with us and, and what should we leave behind? So, Jean, you know, you brought up the Lunar Village idea, and actually, with talking about cooperation going forward, we talked on our last episode about IAC, about how it seems like NASA is the only agency that's not focused on going back to the moon. And, of course, as we all know, ESA has been spearheading the idea of this <laughs> moon village. <laughs> Director General Sean Warner is very excited about the Moon Village, to say the least. Very, very excited. And it sounds like Russia is getting really excited to be part of it. And the Chinese are excited to get on board with this as well. And I know there's some smaller nations that have expressed interest in being part of it. And I actually got the privilege of spending quite a lot of this IAC with Bernard Foing from ESA's Aztec Center, who is basically the moon guy right now. He ran the entire symposium on lunar exploration. And I only got to go to a few of the technical talks. I actually got invited to do something really special to sing my song about why we need to go back to the moon as part of the technical sessions to end up the symposia on lunar exploration. So I went to a couple of these to support them. And it's amazing. I mean, ESA has been actually preparing for this for a while. They've been doing we are very familiar with some earthbound habitation projects. We've followed quite a few of them. I think we've even had guests from one. And so ESA has been doing a bunch of their own. I'm not sure if people are aware of this. In Utah, near the Eiffel volcano. And they're testing out all kinds of habitats that could potentially be used on the moon and Mars. Euro Moon Mars, uh, MTRS, has been happening in Utah, and they're just all over the place. They've got psychologists working really hard on the psychology of living like that, and several of them presented, which was really interesting because the challenges of actually living on another planet are so much more severe than just living on the ISS. So even though the ISS has been an excellent test bed, we need even more psychological testing right here on Earth, as well as on the ISS, as well as hopefully on the moon before we'll be ready to deal with 
sending people to Mars. This is a whole different aspect of why we need more test beds. Also, while they're doing these, they are testing out all kinds of new rover ideas <laughs> and technology ideas that will help them out in EVAs. And what's really amazing about ESA's process is they're doing this thing that they call Moon Village Jams or Moon Village Jam Sessions. And they get people from all different areas of the space industry, engineers, designers, scientists, all different people, and putting them in a room together. It kind of reminds me of Space Up, except it's a really official and they're really designing stuff <laughs> that might go to the moon. Of course, you never know that could happen from Space Up. But <laughs> this is... Basically, ESA trying to tap that kind of energy by getting all these people who usually wouldn't work together in a room. And they're also doing these Moon Academy workshops, which are open to pretty much everybody as well. They're trying to think outside the box and get artists and designers sitting down with engineers. And I think this is a really great strategy. This is exactly why people have been talking about STEAM, because there needs to be so much creativity in all of this. So watching what ESA is doing, they're preparing very actively for this. This isn't just Vorner going around talking about it. This is something they're really working on every day. And everybody comes to the consensus, this is essential to Mars. And a couple of huge things are we really have to learn how to grow plants in other places. There's actually a few really cool closed circuit systems for growing plants that could be the answer to growing everywhere, including in orbit and in orbit around other bodies, because these closed systems actually have little airlocks, little robotic arms and they can carry the plant to an airlock so you can safely get the plant with, while all the others stay in a closed system. These are being designed as we speak. So there's a lot of technology that is further along than we think it is, which is part of why the Moon Village idea is so interesting. They want to use things that are in existence and develop technology from things you can get off the shelf. They want to look at different ways to make this cheaper and easier and faster and better. And so, again, we're talking about finding different solutions to problems that everybody has. So this is only going to benefit the entire space community in the long run. And I really applaud ESA for taking a whole different way of looking at how do we do this. Yeah, I mean, it still casts it, it kind of begs the $64 million question, if you will. How come we're not jumping on board this here in the States? We're going to be. I mean, it's just, it's sort of almost sort of the kind of like, you know, wink, wink, elbow, elbow. When you talk to people at NASA and even, even bold in statements this year, the heads of agencies plenary are that, yeah, we know the moon's coming we have a public commitment to this journey to Mars. And I think it's just, as we talked about last episode, the next administration is going to be able to keep the journey to Mars and hopefully just make some tweaks. And, and I am would be completely unsurprised to see the tweaks would come to make the moon, the lunar surface, the Mars test bed. Yeah, and, and folks, if you haven't heard 810, I would go back and listen to that one because we, we do go into this question in depth. I'm, I'm going to leave that alone for now. But uh, yeah, we, we do explore that, that the why 
for some reason or other, we're just not picking that up here. So again, I, I would urge you to go ahead and listen to eight, the episode 810. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, and it's very interesting because with all the stuff that's going on, I know there's a whole lot of everyone saying, oh, it should be this, should be that. We don't really study public opinion, though, that much about space. I mean, we talk about it a lot on this show, but no one's really done a good paper on it <laughs> until now, in my personal opinion. Dad, wasn't that your second paper? I don't know about no one's done any good papers, but there's certainly not enough research in this area. It's not something that's highly researched. So yeah, so my, my second paper I gave during um, an international student workshop, which is one of the the IAC associated events. And I'm um, really interesting research, uh, especially one paper about space debris that was fascinating that might actually turn into a collaborative paper next year. So keep tuned. <laughs> I might be talking about space debris policy. But what I did is looked at public opinion and international policy response. And I was looking at two research questions here. First, how does public opinion influence space policy? And second, does public opinion influence policies on international cooperation? So what I did, and I won't go through all the studies that I looked at, I'll just summarize for you, but I, I basically aggregated all the data from the public opinion surveys we have thus far. And there's just, there's not that many, 10 or 15 that I used in this study over the course of the last decade or so. There are studies out there, but again, it, it's not something that's looked at and there's not a lot in place for ways to study this effectively because these questions aren't asked on large surveys or if you have to do it, you have to sort of get your own funding to do your own survey. So I looked at these and just to sort of briefly go over, because I know that there's, I definitely want to get to what Cassie has to talk about next, which is a little bit along these lines, but just to sort of go over what I found is that when it comes to the public opinion of space, there's this issue called saliency. And saliency is a word that we use in political science, which means whether or not people are aware of what's going on. If it's highly salient, like right now in the US, the presidential election is highly salient. People are following it. They know what's going on then people are more likely to have an opinion or form an opinion about it. So we know that in public opinion for space research, it matters if the issue is salient or not. Also, citizen support can drive funding and cooperation. So if citizens want uh, something to happen, and, and Earth observations are a big place in which citizens want to know what's going on with our planet, and they want countries to work together on this. Uh, a great example is the uh, high-definition camera on the International Space Station that you can go and watch any time. Also, climate observatory and Earth observation. So if citizens support these measures, then they're more likely to happen, and it's more likely to happen with international cooperation. And finally, framing and context are important factors. So framing, again, is this word that we use in political science. And for those of you who are not aware, I'm a doctoral student in political science, though I do study space policy. Um, so framing is, is how the media or how agencies talk about or put a frame around any mission. So if a mission is talked about in terms of how it can be an economic benefit or how it can be a benefit to humans or how it's going to help our children, people are more likely to support them when there's this sort of frame. However, if space missions are talked about in terms of something like space weaponization, then those can negatively impact citizens' opinions on space. And then again, contexts are also important. So in, in what context are we talking about, about space? The big 
finding or the big implication to come out of the study that, that I shared was, again, you know, as I talked with my last paper, I'm sort of looking at these implications and these areas for future research. So most importantly, as, as you alluded to, Sawyer, is that there's not a lot of public opinion research done about space. So our understanding of the public perception and saliency is poor in this area, and we have to improve it. So if we want to better understand how to get people to care about space and, and how people think about space, we have to do more research. And then again, the public is just not well informed about space issues, and it's possible that better information and availability could affect perceptions about space and or funding of space activities. Highly engaged citizenry, so people who really care about space can actually have impacts. Hubble Huggers is a great example of this. James Webb Space Telescope Science Warriors. So there is an impact when citizens are engaged. They can affect missions, they can affect funding, they can affect whether or not policymakers see space as an important thing. And also that citizens are receptive to cooperation in space on an international level, and multiple examples of successful cooperations are available to interested citizens. And finally, in the future, we need to conduct studies that address these areas of inquiry in order to further our understanding of the relationship of public opinion and policy in the formation of space policies. So this is just something that we say it all the time on the show, and I know that those of you who are, are frequent listeners are aware that we talk about this issue, but we really do need to do more academic research into the area so that we can go to policymakers and, and, and give them ways into which not only to say that, look, your constituencies care about space. To quote David Newman said this in a session for U.S. students that was just right on the head and I have said it in multiple settings over the past couple weeks. So she's like, it's so important that we tell our story in their language. So, you know, the election is coming up. We have to, at least in, the, in America, what if space is funded is important to a lot of us and important to a lot of our listeners. And if we want our congressmen and our senators and our president to care about it, we have to be able to learn how to tell the story of space in a language that they understand. So a lot of times that means economic impact or impact for the future for our kids. One thing that one of my professors is quite fond of saying is if you want to get a congressman to care about something or a congresswoman to care about something, tell them it's about the kids. Everybody cares about kids. So it's a, it's a really important and uh, interesting area that's incredibly under-researched and, and this paper was an attempt to sort of aggregate that data so that I can uh, know where to look for future research. Well, it sounds like an awesome paper. And again, it's about time that someone outside of just, you know, our normal podcast people start to dive into that idea more because it, it does affect so much. So, I mean, that's a brilliant paper. So thank you for sharing that with us, Kat. Hey, Kat, is that paper and, and, and your other one, is, is that available anywhere on any academic website or is it available for uh, public viewing anywhere? My first paper will be available. There's, I have it completely done. This paper right here is actually not completely fully written yet. This was a presentation delivered, so I'm still working and workshopping some things, but it will be available. And once it is, I'll make sure our readers are aware. But my um, other paper will be posted on my website, which is katherinerobison.com, and I'll make sure that there is a link to it in the show notes. Please do, because I'm, I'm looking forward to reading both of them. So as you are mentioning, I mean, public opinion affects so much. It affects congresspeople and especially politicians and people like that. But I mean, it's really important for everybody to keep an eye on how public opinion matters and to help improve public opinion. And I know one really good way of improving public opinion about space are some of these grassroots outreach projects, like what Cassie talked about in her paper. 
Yes, in fact, uh, I talked about in my paper exactly what has me on this show in the first place, my music. My session was actually called New Worlds, Non-Traditional Space Education and Outreach, and I'm about as non-traditional as it gets, so it was pretty perfect. As many of our listeners know, I'm sure, and if not, you can go back to our first season and listen to my interview about my first song. I wrote a song back in 2009 called Big Sale for NASA and sort of fell into a world of grassroots outreach that I had never intended to get into or really noticed I was part of until, well, this year. And so (laughs) when Kat suggested I write this paper (laughs) and it really made me sit down and analyze what I do, because like I said, I just fell into it. And so the song Big Sale for NASA is specifically a political plea to Americans to tell their representatives we need to fund NASA. It was very specifically a song about that. Since then, I've written more songs about space, which not all are politically motivated, but my other politically motivated song is Familiar Frontier, which was my reaction to President Obama's saying we're not going back to the moon. (laughs) And so this brings our whole episode full circle. But when I played this music for the public, it has this incredible reaction. Like if I go into a bar and I talk to random people about space, they're like, oh, cool. But if I get up on stage and I start singing about space and why you should care, the audience starts chanting, NASA, NASA. And people come up to me after the show and start asking me all kinds of questions about space or tell me they've watched a launch I told them about. And so I started to realize that this is actually having some kind of impact. Where I live and where I've played many of my shows in particular, it's a politically aware and active area, very high educational levels. And so when people come to me and they say, I wrote our senator, I tend to actually believe them. It's really hard to check up on that. I can't find out for my senators, did all these people write you about space? But it's having definitely a noticeable impact I, when I see people even a few years after they've seen me play, they remember I'm the space girl and they want to talk to me about space. So I think that there's a lot more interest in space than anyone gives the public credit for. I just think that they're extremely misinformed. What I also noticed is when they come up to talk about things, they're very receptive to being corrected by somebody that they already have built up trust with, which made me realize that when you're on stage, You make yourself very vulnerable, and that makes audiences have a certain level of trust for the things that you say. We all know musicians who have a huge impact every time they open their mouths and say something political. So what I'm doing is just trying to use that for space. So it's not really unique in music, but it's pretty unique in space outreach. And the reaction was actually quite incredible because... This is exactly what people are having trouble figuring out how to do. You can throw NASA socials. You can put up amazing pictures from all kinds of exploration. But you need people to come to you. The media only has so much reach and only has so much time to even talk about space and doesn't have a tendency to misinform. We need people who can get out there in the public, go where the people already are, in my case, bars, parks, etc., and basically take people by the hand and lead them 
to all these wonderful sources because now the science is out there. You can read about all kinds of science. You can read about space exploration. You can find a ton of information on your own, but you have to know it's there and you have to know that you want it. I think grassroots people, and I think that everything I've learned can be applied well beyond just music, even just simple conversations with your friends. I've learned that as long as you don't antagonize people, because obviously when the public comes up to you, you get all types of people. A lot of people want to talk to me about astrology, for example. I try and I don't tell them that I, I try to avoid telling them I don't believe in astrology. I try to just turn the conversation into things like astronomy. So by using these methods, by pulling out a picture of the sun when somebody mentions a solar flare and showing them what a solar flare looks like, they actually remember that and it touches them. So any of you listening out there, you can do these things yourself. But remember, at the end, to remind people they have to get politically active. They have to call their congressmen, their senators, or if you're in another country, whoever your representatives are. Because I talked to a lot of people over at ESA who they kept asking me, can you come do this for us? Can you write Bake Sale for ESA? This is not just an American thing. I might have started with Big Sail for NASA, but it's not just an American thing. Space needs more funding all over the globe. And all of you, every person listening, can do something to help make that happen. You can't make it happen on your own, but if we all work together, we can make it happen. And that means working individually as grassroots advocates who just love space. That means partnering up with, I might even have some really cool projects to talk about in the future because I might be partnering with some more traditional outreach groups and even some space companies and stuff to try and get their messages out to the public more. Because ultimately we are all in this together. Private industry is still, a lot of it is dependent on government contracts. So all of this matters. Like what you decide to advocate for is going to have an impact. There's not that many people who are advocating for, or really even against space. I mean, Kat, what you were just talking about, we don't know much about public opinion, but we're a very small group of people. So when we band together and we contact people, we can have an impact. And that's the one other thing I'd like to say about my music is that a lot of times I've played for the space community and that obviously I don't need to convince anybody listening to this podcast that space is cool. I don't think. I think you all know space is cool and sexy and you love it. But did you know that you can have so much impact in your daily life on the future of space policy, on the future of space funding, more importantly? Get out there and do it. Even if you're shy, even if you're scared to talk to people, wear your, wear your patches, wear your buttons, find icebreakers and talk to everybody you can because we all need to do this together. Just last week when I was over in uh, Wallops for the Cygnus launch, I, I was just in the lobby no more than two minutes just working, um, just doing some prep notes that I wanted to go ahead and ask and get my questions together and so on for the uh, pre-flight briefing. And lo and behold, um, some people were asking about, you know, saw, I guess somebody saw on the screen what I was doing and I started explaining what Cygnus was all about, what Antares was all about. And about four seconds later, I had an audience and it was something I really wasn't anticipating. <laughs> so again, if you're, if you're knowledgeable, you could do this. Just as, and, and Cassie, you, you made a point. And it doesn't take 
anything. Sometimes it just takes a, a laptop and a lot of passion, just even a, wearing a badge or wearing a patch and somebody pointing it out and you striking up a conversation. And that's how half of my conversations start to begin with. When If I'm wearing an old mission patch from, from the shuttle days or something like that, people talk about it. I used to joke around with, uh, with Beth Beck over at NASA that one of my jackets, for instance, that I bought uh, for STS-132 constantly gets me into trouble because it's identical to the ones that the crews wear and everybody goes, oh, you're not I'm like, no, but I could tell you a little bit more if you want to, want to hear about it, but yeah, I know I'm not, you know, I'm not an astronaut or anything like that, but at least strikes the conversation and gets spaceflight off of the back burner and into the minds of, of other folks. I mean, the, there were folks over here that didn't know SLS was going on, didn't know Orion was going on, even with the, the EFT-1 launch two years ago. So it, this stuff is just really, you need to get out there, guys, if you really want to move the ball forward. And it goes hand in hand with what we discussed earlier in getting in, into your Congress critters and talking to them and writing to them. So keep all this in mind. Great job, Cassie. God, you both of you guys, I can't be any more than, than, than just really, really proud of you both. I have to brag for a second because I got to say, I did get the comment of my life via WhatsApp right after I talked. Someone sent me the message that only three people engaged the audience and made them laugh during this conference. One was Elon Musk. The second was Bill Nye. The third was you. Uh, Somebody saying that to me. And that was the biggest compliment because I have never done anything like this in my life. And people were coming up to me for the remainder, even at the gala the next night, saying, I heard you gave the best talk and I want to talk to you about it. And I met so many people that way. It was absolutely mind blowing how interested people were. And the thing is, it's because I was talking about this question that nobody ever seems to have an answer to. How do you actually get the general voting public? Kids are a captive audience in schools. They, they have outreach programs that come into their schools. There should be more of that. Don't get me wrong. We need lots of that. There's all kinds of programs to get kids in, but retaining their interest when they're adults and they have kids to feed but of I their mean, own Cassie, is so was, hard. This was the, the finding of the first paper that we did together yeah. at IAC. It was. We're like... <laughs> We, we said, we're like, we found that there's engagement, but we don't know if there's voter, if it translates into voter participation. Mm-hmm. And, and that paper, you know, is available for anyone who wants to go and read that. And, and so that's still the question two years later, like, how do we translate engagement into participation? Yes, exactly. Some of us are just doing our own little parts to... I think what I said in my paper was turn everyday voters into enthusiasts and turn enthusiasts into advocates. And to ask the same question there, Cassie, I asked Kat, is the paper out there somewhere that where it can be downloaded and, and read by it's, everybody? It's not yet. I actually had a problem of switching servers, so my website is down at the moment, but <laughs> I'm, I'm in the midst of fixing that, and so hopefully I'll have it up by the time the show notes come out, but I'll make sure that we have it available via Talking Space. Grand, because one of the things I, I, I want to say, and I, I started to say it earlier, I am extraordinarily proud of both of you folks. I mean, you went over there, you told some grand stories, did some incredible research, and you both should be applauded. 
for the job that you did over at IAC. The only thing I, I really, really regret is I wasn't there to, to see you guys off and be in the room during those those presentations because um, I'm I, I can't words can't describe it how proud I am of you both. That's that's how I felt, you know, watching Kat in our at our first IAC. She presented our paper. She was the lead author. It was so cool to be involved and yet also like looking at Kat just so proud of what she was doing. <laughs> it was such like a weird thing to be part of it and yet separate all at the same time and get to watch like an observer, you know. <laughs> that's certainly how I felt watching you. I mean, you were the only thing I saw that day, I think, because I was just so unwell. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, from giving you two hours notice and saying, like, hey, you really should submit to this. It sounds perfect for you. Uh, so I sort of felt like a proud little mama. I was like, aw. <laughs> Dragging you into my world as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, but, now um, I already have pressure on what I'm going to present next year. It's like, what? I just got <laughs> home. I'm not even over my illness from there. <laughs> So yes, and I have to say, like a major, major shout out and props to Cassie, who, at great personal risk, took care of me, such good care of me while I was sick at IAC, and and then herself got sick. She she deserves a lot of kudos and extra props for that. Talking space is a family and a team all the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think you both deserve the credit for this. So thank you so much to both of you for going and covering this. I mean, this is spectacular. There is one person I need to mention also before we can wrap up IAC, which is Remco Timmermans. Who yes, he, yes, absolutely. He helped Kat and I. He, he made sure that we got info that we couldn't have gotten. He was basically... Like, we, we used to say I was the fifth Beatle of Talking Space. He was, like, the fifth Beatle of Talking Space for IAC and was super helpful and made sure that we were well taken care of and f ate that we ate and, and just were ready to rock every day. And so he's, like, become, like, a superstar at IAC. <laughs> and, and I want to mention that he went from... When I met him on Twitter in like 2010, he was not in the space industry at all. He now works with a bunch of space companies. He does social media. He arranges tours for people to like go to Baikonur and to go see the Aurora up in Norway. He is Mr. Space Advocate. He is just doing this wonderful job of getting people involved. And so, yeah, he need, he deserves a major shout out and a huge thank you from everyone at Talking Space. Yeah, um, I'll flat out say, you know, a huge thank you to him, too, for taking care of you both and and for really, really joining up with, with us. And uh, uh, the door is always the door is always open if you want to walk on one of these days. We'll get him on the show for sure. But he's traveling too much to all these space events. <laughs> Trying to catch him when he's not on a plane is hard. But I did want to mention that for all the people out there who are giant space enthusiasts and who want into the industry and don't know how to do it, find a way because that's exactly what Remco did and he's pulling it off. You can too. Work work hard, find your way, find your path even if you're like me and you're an artist and at the opposite end of the academic spectrum from the sciences. There are places for you in this community. Go find yours. Very well said. And with that, I think that's a perfect conclusion to our IAC coverage and to this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Very informative. And again, if you, you're here in the United States, please go out and vote. Yes. 
Don't forget when election day actually is. It is November 8th, 2016. <laughs> Make your voice heard, please. And thank you as well for joining us to the amazing ladies who helped cover IAC. That includes Cassie Tamanini. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to thank everybody at IAC and the IAF for putting on such a spectacular event every year. I just cannot wait until Adelaide next year. And I can't wait to bring it to all of you. It's going to be exciting. And thank you as well, Kat Robinson. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be here again. I want to echo what Cassie said. Thank you to IAC and IAF for putting on a fantastic event. We look forward to bringing you next year's from Adelaide, Australia. And I just have to echo everyone, go vote. If you're in the U.S., it is an amazing privilege that we're able to have a say in our leadership. I'm very happy that my absentee ballot is turned in and it's valid. So I get to now sit back and watch, and I hope that you will all, if you're here, (laughs) (laughs) go and vote. It's so important. And hey, if you don't vote, if you don't stand up and share your voice, then you don't get the right to complain. So go take part. Yes. And to the pretty good chunk of our listeners who are not from the United States, we apologize in advance for whatever the outcome may be. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for listening. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.